that's why I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. And, you know, I didn't come into this work through permaculture. I came into it through the farming community and, and sort of bumping up into permaculture on the edges and find mm -hmm. it really fascinating and important, but also heartbreaking is it appears to me like, and this is summarizing, I'm sure there's exceptions, but white folks stealing indigenous knowledge, packaging it, rebranding it and selling it uh, for these certification courses. It's very important to acknowledge that colonization and decolonization are not metaphors. So it's not about shifting our mind frame or letting go of linear time or getting close to the earth. Like those might be nice outcomes or corollaries, but decolonization means giving la land back to indigenous people full stop. Well, kia ora from Aotearoa, New Zealand, where I'm currently sitting uh, in the downstairs of a double-story 1965 Bedford house bus that I call home. It's a cold winter morning, but the fire is roaring and I am really cosy. Um, located a little bit south of a town called Fakatane in the well-named Bay of Plenty. So this is the setting from which my voice is currently flowing into your ears. And whether accidentally or intentionally, you have found yourself listening to episode 61 of a phenomenon called the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. Today's conversation is, is, a, is a beautiful thing. It was a, a deep joy for me to be inside of this conversation. My guest today is Leah Penniman from Soulfire Farm. And... Um, I'd heard secondhand that Leah had had some made some critical comments at a conference or something, some presentation um, about permaculture, and I was curious. Um, you know, critical perspectives are very welcome on this show and and integral to the process of making permaculture stronger. And I was curious to see where where Leah was coming from, uh, and also I've I've had an interest for quite some time now in getting my head around the concept of or the phrase I've heard of decolonizing permaculture and I had the sense that Leah was um, was going to be a great person to ask about that about the process of colonizing the process of decolonizing and on the flip side the process of um, well the idea of indigenous and indigeneity in the process of re-indigenizing or becoming indigenous again what, what what these concepts mean and how we can hold them and frame them and approach them um, and perhaps even live from them in a non-superficial way and i was not disappointed i i gained so much and i was deeply touched at many times during this conversation with the commitment the care the eloquence and the wisdom that leah embodies for me and all of which is grounded in the fact that as a farm farmer and a farm manager Leah has her hands in the earth um, you can you can learn more about Soulfire Farm at soulfirefarm.org I'll put some um, links to Leah's work in the show notes which you can find at makingpermaculturestronger.net there will I'll drop in some of the many fantastic uh, presentations where you can you can um, hear Leah speaking on YouTube as well uh, I wanted to to 
just give you a heads up that if you're into permaculture, there's got to be a chance you are if you listen to this podcast, um, you know, committed to it, identify with it. There's probably going to be times in this conversation where you feel challenged or possibly triggered. And I just invite you to notice that, you know, and, and um, my, my energy and intention in, in the conversation was really to be just to get to know Leah and to genuinely engage with, with her perspective, which I think is a really valid one. And um, while, uh, you know, my critical focus in permaculture is, is coming from a different place, it's, I think it's so valuable to, to genuinely engage with and acknowledge the perspectives that folks um, outside of permaculture have and, um, and, and certainly not to dismiss them um, without deeply consideration the fact that they probably have some truth to them. Um, I did want to give you one news update in terms of the project, which is something big has happened in the last few days for me. I've crossed a threshold. Uh, it's been a breaking point feeling, but I've realized that I'm um, I'm not here to muck around. I'm not here to waste time. I'm not here to hold back anymore. I'm not here to be uh, overly gentle or polite. I'm here to, to, to pursue a certain intention, which is collaboratively regenerating our understandings, our practices of permaculture design process and um, and so things are going to be getting interesting and real and um, I'll say more about that perhaps in, in, in the coming episodes and you'll you'll have an experience increasingly of what I'm talking about there but I want to let you know that some interesting stuff some exciting stuff is is coming um, and that I'm going to be appreciating your support and the, the main support I'm talking about there is the option of going to patreon.com slash making permaculture stronger um, and at some point I'll have you can support the project financially through the website but I'm not talking about that so much I mean that is really integral and cr- critical and I'm so grateful for that <laughs> even more than that I'm grateful for the people that are able to listen and engage and use this as food <clears throat> as nourishment in the development of your own thinking and feeling and practicing and experimenting with healthy design process and how we we increase the depth of our design process literacy within permaculture i'll leave it there that was the that was a little update i couldn't resist sharing um, i know you're gonna get so much from this conversation thanks so much to leah for coming on the show Okay, well, here we are. I'm super excited today to be in conversation with Leah Penniman, the founding co-director and farm manager of Soulfire Farm over in the States. Thanks for joining us today, Leah. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. Likewise. And I, I've got to start by honoring the, the work you do. I've tuned into various of the communities and projects from the on-the-ground farm that's feeding a whole bunch of people to the high-level policy work and you're writing books and hosting events. So I just wanted to honor the the work you're doing in the world and the sense I get of its authenticity, its relevance, its depth, its clarity, and so on. So I want to start with that, the gratitude for, for how you're showing up in the world. Well, thank you. I mean, it really feels like an ancestor's errand and an earth's calling to do this work of uprooting racism in the food system and healing our connection to land. So yeah, as you mentioned, Soul Fire Farm, which is a 10-year-old project, has Three basic things we do. One is that we take care of 80 acres of ancestrally Mohican territory using our uh, regenerative methods and, and pull forth all this 
fruit and medicine, vegetables from the earth that are given to people at no cost in the community who need it. And then layered on top of that, we do training programs for black and brown farmers, uh, youth, elders, adults, people of all ages who want to make a life on land. And then finally are involved in regional and national coalitions to get at the root cause of injustice in the food system, which means policy, advocacy, and institution building. So we keep pretty busy and <laughs> definitely try to you know, live up to that high, high calling of healing our relationship with food and land as a species. You're beautiful. Yeah, I get the sense that you're 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 a community, and um, in and within it, you as an individual, someone who's found their calling. <laughs> I wanted to I want to um, dive right in this to the topic of design and creation processes because as you've just mentioned, you're in, you're involved in co-creating a lot of different kinds of things, and a huge focus of this show is the way that humans go about designing and creating, manifesting, bringing into being whatever it is they're they're doing, whether it's the layout of a farm or the way they approach a book or organize an event. And I wanted to, before we go into certain themes, is just invite you to reflect and share any, um, any of your learnings or your, or your understandings about the, the kinds of processes that you've been engaging and the way you approach you know, creating a new event or project or, or whatever it is. And also if and how that's evolved over time. It'd be cool to hear what comes up for you. Well, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about process is sacred biomimicry, which is a fancy way of saying copying what the planet is doing. A couple examples of that. You know, one is that, you know, when a tree in the forest, say it's on the edge, it's getting a whole lot of sunshine and receiving the ability to make sugars and processed minerals, it doesn't actually grow 10 times taller than all the other trees, right? It takes us, takes us excess resources and shares it through a network of fungal mycelium to the other trees so that they grow together, they mast together, they can share messages and warnings. And I think as Soul Fire Farm has grown in its impact and its visibility, we've had to think about what does uh, growth look like from a biomimicry standpoint, and it's not being 10 times taller than everyone else, but trying to figure out how we share and how we uh, grow laterally and uh, trans-regionally to support sibling projects, right? So that's an example of biomimicry and uh, one other that I'll mention is a little bit more personal and it has to do with the ways that I've resisted winter over time. You know, I've grown up in the Northeast, very familiar with winter. We have six months of frozen ground, frozen air up here. And it, it's hard on us Caribbean folks. It's cold, <laughs> no light. There's no vitamin D that your skin can make. And it was the winter that I wrote Farming While Black, uh, 2017, 2018 that I finally had this awakening where I looked out and I was like, everything is resting right now. The trees are not, you know, moving fluids up and down. The animals are hibernating. Even the voles are underground, slowing down, eating their stores. And here I am as a human being trying to do summer in winter, do summer all the time. And when I surrendered to the energy of winter, which is an energy of writing, it's an energy of reflecting, it's an energy of planning, of seed orders, of crop visioning, right? That's what winter is for. I fell in love with the season and that the shift in fo focus and the shift in pace. And so that is whenever I think about a new initiative or events or where the organization is going, I try to look at what are the lessons that the forest and the rivers and the birds and ferrets, like what do they all want to teach uh, us about how to be? Beautiful. Love it. Yeah. I love that the idea of aligning with the the larger 
seasonal ebbs and flows rather than just imposing our will sort of thing. Maybe yeah, we'll come back to the topic of imposing our will problem, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we do. We have a serious imposing our will problem, which I want to come back to. <laughs> Maybe we'll come back to this topic of biomimicry too, but I'll just float. It's an interesting topic in, in the sense that we might come back to this idea of nature too, which which I'm sure you're familiar with that idea that it's often used in an abstract way and, and um, we can use it in a way that it separates us from the rest of life. But the idea of tuning into other living systems and rather than copying them, aligning with them and finding our own role in that larger system, right? Which is, which is what I'm taking from what you're sharing. Yeah, um, that's beautiful. I was just talking to a musician friend of mine who I really revere. If you don't know the work of Toshi Regan, definitely okay. check it out. Um, Bernice Johnson Regan's daughter of Sweet Honey in the Rock, um, the creator of the Parable of the Sower opera, Octavia Butler. Uh, but she she was talking about how the biggest message that she learns from the earth is we belong. I belong like part of my body is the ocean. The ocean is my body. Mm -hmm. This planet in this whole vast and beautiful universe was made just so. And it's our home and it's our place. So I think about that um, as well in, in hearing your reflection back mm -hmm. about how we are components of uh, this this ecosystem and the super organism. Mm -hmm. mm, it's beautiful. Love it. One thing I wanted to um, you mentioned right at the beginning, which is which is true to the thing I wanted to share, was one thing I've noticed in the, ex the exposure I've had to your work is clear, upfront, deep intention. I really really sitting with that. So when I went to your website, it jumps out really clear. The two high level, I think you call them strategic goals of uprooting racism in the food system and then seeding community food sovereignty. And I, I love. When I see that sense of really clear intention that, I, that that infuses what happens thereafter in service of the the intention, is, and is that something that sounds right to you? That that and so I imagine in other projects when you when you start something, you you spend you have some process for really diving into what's our intention here, what do we really want to be aiming toward? Or well, it was iterative for us because when we originally started Soul Fire Farm, it was a combination of our longtime yearning to be on land. You know, my partner Joan and I both had about a decade of farming experience at that point. But the, the spark or the catalyst was that we were living in the south end of Albany, New York, USA, which is a neighborhood under food apartheid, which is a insidious system of segregation we have in the United States where you know, certain people experience food scarcity and others experience food opulence. And that uh, is, is really right down racial and class lines. So we were unable to, to easily get fresh, healthy food for our own children. I mean, I was on WIC, which stands for Women, Infant, and Children. It's a, a government-funded program to access food, but my experience trying to cash in my WIC coupons was to be harassed. Uh, there were no supermarkets or farmers markets or community garden plots available. There was no bus line to get to the supermarket. So it was very tough to get food in that neighborhood. And when our neighborhood, when our neighbors found out that we knew how to farm, they started encouraging us to start the farm for the people. And Soulfire's original vision was pretty straightforward in that we would grow food and provide it at affordable prices to our neighbors. And that still remains a core tenant of what we do. But a lot of the other aspects and particularly the explicitly anti-racist framework evolved as we learned, evolved as our community expanded, mm -hmm. and as our community asked us to take leadership in these arenas. So, you know, it went from delivering food to the parents uh, who were getting the food saying, our young people, our children are getting uh, 
targeted by the police because they have nothing to do in the summer. Can you take them out to the farm where they can be safe and learn? So then came the youth program. Then once we were doing that, we started getting calls from people in different regions saying, is it true that there's a black person farming in the woods? Can I come learn? So we said, oh, well, maybe we need an apprenticeship program. And then our apprentices graduated and they said, well, we don't have any land access. So we said, okay, well, maybe we need to work on land finding services and start a land trust. So everything that we have done has very much evolved as our community has grown and as the community needs have grown. Um, And that particular phrase of uprooting racism in the food system and seeding community food and land sovereignty, again, came from this idea of sacred biomimicry, like how are we using earth metaphors when we think about what we're doing in society, uh, but also a clarity that, you know, anywhere you look in the food system from sunshine to plate, whether that is access to capital, the way the workers are treated, um, how seed is controlled, how land is controlled. Um, the consumer access that there is white supremacy infused in that arc. And, and we have to uproot that and, and plant something different. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the kind of all encompassing headline for yeah, <laughs> various yeah. projects and initiatives that we do. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, one thing I wanted to comment on briefly was I liked the, the way those two things met because the, the uprooting component is about um, engaging with I don't know if you'd say pushing back, but, but kind of like getting, in a sense, getting rid of something that's 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 a block. And then so like pushing against something that's undesirable and then f- that flowing into actually um, moving towards supporting the co-creation of something that's desirable in terms of community and land. So I, 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 I kind of like the synergy there. That, that there was the, what do we need to acknowledge that is there, that is an issue that is a, 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 a real block in terms of the, the racism written into the food system and moving through that you know, like, like the idea that simply to make that go away would be one thing, but then what does that open doors to? So I, I like the, the kind of twin, the twin facets there. It's not enough to just go pull up the weeds. You have to yeah. plant, but it's also not enough to plant if there's, you know, overrun with competitors, the seed won't take. So both of those things are needed. Yes, love it. Now I'm very excited, Leah, to the, the um, inception of this whole conversation was um, there's a forum and stuff and part of part of the project on part of, which as I mentioned is bringing a hopefully loving but disruptive energy to permaculture and finding ways to support permaculture to have deep conversations and up its game and not unconsciously regurgitate or perpetuate cultural wide issues and and which are caught up with colonial ideas and all sorts, but I'd, I'd, someone, I'd heard this secondhand, so it might not even be true, but someone had said they were at a talk of yours that they found compelling, and you'd, you'd mentioned permaculture, and something along the lines of how permaculture had collapsed or was in collapse or something like that. I don't know if that even rings any bells, but regardless, I'd love to hear your current perspective on, um, on permaculture, how it's fed into your journey, what, what you make of it, and I'd like, love you to, to invite you to be blatantly honest <laughs> as well. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, first, I'll just say as a disclaimer, I, I don't call myself a permaculturalist. I've never taken a permaculture course or attended a permaculture conference. It's not a movement that I subscribe to. So uh, as someone who is a practi- practitioner of Afro-Indigenous farming methods, what I see from the outside, and I have attended lectures and read things, and hmm. I know about people who talk about their work as permaculture, is it appears to me like, and this is summarizing, I'm sure there's exceptions, but white folks stealing indigenous knowledge, packaging it, rebranding it, and selling it uh, for these certification courses, often without acknowledgement of the origin. Yeah, it's a form of appropriation. So that's, I don't know exactly what I said at the conference, but something like that. Mm -hmm. And examples of that would be, you know, you take, for example, the 
uh, Haitian tradition of creating a jardin la cou, which means house garden and refers to the integration of a multi-story tree guild. So you have your moringa trees or your lemon trees or your mango trees that are tall. And then around that you have the, the rosso and the vetiver grasses, you have vegetables, you have vining plants, you have tubers underground. And it's all in this integrated system on a hillside um, that stabilizes the hillside, prevents erosion, plants are interacting at multi-story and multi-function. And that is thousands of years old. You know, mm -hmm. if you go back to Yoruba lands in Nigeria, there's at least 26 different combinations like this of these tree guilds. Um, and then you see in permaculture, this referenced in a, a generic way that doesn't hinge itself to the brilliance of uh, West African farmers who have developed these technologies among other indigenous people around the world. Um, so I think my yearning for not just for permaculture, but for our entire lands-based, earth-based movement is that we recognize that the people of the earth are part of the earth too. And we can't just take the seeds, take the knowledge, you know, take these techniques, rebrand them and sell them without the consent, the leadership, the compensation of, the protection of um, the brilliant people who originated these technologies. And they shouldn't be clumped together. I think we need we need to do our due diligence to understand the origins of of all of these beautiful ways of of interacting with the earth. So again, there's nothing wrong with like the practice, right? Mm. It's good good practices, um, but it's rooted in another form of white supremacist colonialist settler settler colonialism, which is you know whatever brown people have, white folks think they have the right to take and do what they want with. Um, without any form of accountability. So I think that's the examination is why do folks think they have the right to take and how can we shift that so that we're not just perpetuating the same harms of, of theft and pillage, even in our niche earth loving corners <laughs> of thought. <right? laughs> Thanks Leah, that's great. And um, uh, certainly above the line in terms of disruptive energy, which which is welcome here. And from your perspective, how is that pattern to be shifted? Yeah, so again, not being in the permaculture community, it's hard to say specifically, but I think that some of the work I wanted to do with Farming While Black was just that, was to figure out all of these techniques that I use as a regenerative farmer who loves perennials. My nickname is Perennial Papa, and I'm <laughs> looking out over acres of you know, mixed perennials where I have alley cropping of um, brambles and crawling berries and blueberries and, you know, 50 plus kinds of herbs, right? I'm a big perennials person. So I started to say, well, I've been taught all of these techniques as if they were ahistorical or European. And I'm going to start to question that and do my research to understand why and how is it that I'm making raised beds? Why and how is it that I'm making terraces? Why and how is it that I'm mixing these different crops together or planting these pollinator attractive edges? Like that has to have come from somewhere. And so I just started with a hypothesis that probably black and brown people had something to do with this. And both from direct field research, um, meaning going to the homelands of my ancestors, spending time in Haiti, spending time um, in Ghana, West Africa with farmers and seeing these practices like, oh my goodness, you're making this amazing compost called African dark earth that combines bone char and ash from the cooking fires and residues from soap making and combine it just so to make this super, you know, pyrogenic, amazing uh, compost. So like seeing that through firsthand, but also through 
anthropological research. So when I was doing writing Farming Well Black, I was like, all right, I need to know everything about the history of raised beds. I'm going to hit those journals, those dense journals of anthropology to find out where and how raised beds were happening throughout the world. Um, and sure enough, come across, um, you know, the oldest recorded uh, peoples to use raised beds on the continent of Africa are the Ovambo people in Namibia. And, and so powerful, not just the techniques that they used in terms of mounding the soil to control water, but and adding uh, cattle urine and termite dust and all of these things to enrich the soil. But the way that they fought to save the lands where they'd made these raised beds when the colonial governments came and tried to offer them different land, they were like, no, no, you don't understand. Like we've invested in this soil over generations and that is not something that you just pick up and start over. Like building soil is this multi-generational investment. So then I wrote about that. And so, you know, I'm not saying that that's the only answer but part of my answer to not being complicit with that type of appropriation, even of my own people or erasure of my own people was to interrogate the deeper why of why I'm doing this. I'm like, why, why trellises though? Let me like go back, you know, why compost, why cover crops? Um, I think an additional thing, which I'm, I'm not an expert in, but I, I have seen, and have participated in a growing initiative towards compensation for cultural ecological knowledge. Um, I've seen this in seed catalogs where if they are selling seed that comes from a people as all seeds do, that part of those seed sales are going back to community projects. Um, and in some ways we participate in this because we grow a couple of varieties of maize of um, an indigenous community called the Stockbridge but Muncie Band of the Mohican people. They are the original people of the lands that we're on, but they were forcibly removed in the 1800s to Wisconsin, uh, which is in the mid Midwest of the US, um, you know, a thousand plus miles away. They, they had to walk. And we've started to befriend some of the farmers there and they've entrusted us to grow their seed back in the homelands. And whatever, benefit comes to us from those seeds if they're sold through the catalog or um, sold to community or given out we remit a hundred percent of that to the mm -hmm. uh you know to the cultural work of the stockbridge muncie mohican people and so that's i don't think either of those things get at all of it but i think those are ways to start thinking about about it about telling the right story the true story and doing the mm -hmm. diligence to understand and then also thinking about compensation for cultural and ecological knowledge Thanks, Leo. This is fascinating. I, was, I might just run, kind of recap a little bit and ask a few questions. So one thing is that I think for some permaculturists, at least, there's there's a few layers. And one would be the actual stuff we do, which you're, which you're talking about, the techniques and strategies, the raised beds and trellises and um, composting systems and, and so on. And at that layer, what I'm hearing is that you're, what you're seeing is the, the appropriation. And so and I'm thinking there's kind of three aspects, right? One is Sometimes there's great ideas that it's probably lovely to see shared and used more widely that are you know, good for the earth and good for local communities. And yet what you're seeing is that often that the, the ideas are, are taken and used without firstly acknowledgement of where they came from in their history and the peoples that um, evolved them over uh, thousands of years. And secondly, without compensation. Is that, and, you know, and often without permission too. I mean, right. I, I do hear you that at times, and in, in many cases, you know, folks would be very happy for their technologies and techniques to be spread and to use to heal the earth, but we can't presume that. And so mm -hmm. having some 
process of, of dialogue and consent around what happens to a people's seeds. You know, there's definitely communities that believe very strongly that it is an insult to the spirit of the seed for it to be commodified. And so they may say, well, yes, you can use the seed, but you can never sell it. And, and the assumption of settler society is that everything is up for sale. The ideas are up for sale. The seed is up for sale. The compost is up for sale. But that might be, the viol might be a violation of a contract between a people and their sacred rice, mm -hmm. the Manuman mm -hmm. rice of the Ojibwe, for example. And so when folks go, oh, okay, I see how you're harvesting this wild rice and taking care of it. We're going to copy that, right, and acknowledge you mm -hmm. and maybe even compensate you. But in the meantime, our practice is violating that contract by commodifying, you know, that that would be uh, just a, a grave misdeed. And so I do think there's also a, a consent and conditions part of it, you know, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. and even in, in the commodification of a permaculture design certificate, why do we have the right to take money for spreading other people's knowledge is a real question. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, like permission acknowledgement and where appropriate compensation asking those questions because what like part, part of what I see happening inside and outside permaculture is yeah like running around seeing cool stuff and grabbing it and in a sense that can be tearing something was part of a larger sacred practice or a, a whole web or network of, of stories and, and ways of being with, with the land and, and in community you know and grabbing this bit and this bit and this bit without either, any of those things permission acknowledgement or compensation um, and you bring up another really good point too, which is context, which is that taking a little bit of something might actually rob it of a lot of its efficacy. So if, you know, if the way that we amend the soil is actually part of a whole season long or year long cycle of care, but you take like the July bit, you know, there's also mm. a way that we rob ourselves of the fullness of that, uh, that technology. So I hadn't thought about that, but in, in you saying that, I think, I think also there's something to be said for understanding the whole mm -hmm. um, and not doing the, the reductionist Western scientific thing of like, Oh, each little bit adds up to the whole, but totally. maybe, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fully. Well, that, <laughs> we and really that, need the context. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where I start to sense resonance with something I'm very passionate about, which is catching the very strong pattern of taking a mechanical view of the world where you just grab parts and try and join them to, together and effectively a way of seeing that that kills the world and, and, and mechanizes it and turns it into a, a dead machine and might grab bits and pieces that were part of a larger living fabric and, and, and greatly dishonor them. One thing I wanted to touch on is for some permaculture colleagues, they see, they would acknowledge a lot of these issues at the levels of the appropriation of particular techniques and strategies. And some of them talk about in terms of, um, for some people, permaculture is a second people as opposed to first people, people removed from their indigenous roots and translocated around the world is a kind of a, a stepping stone or something like that, where often the emphasis isn't, isn't about any particular strategy or technique, but it's more about the idea of, a, of relearning a, a way of um, designing and creating place-sourced local solutions that you know, aren't extractive and move away from the, the damaging systems. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering if that makes any sense or you see any appropriation at that level, because in a way that's like a baby step towards how traditional indigenous civilizations always did live. And, and I know that's, that's the aspiration, even if in the, you know, the delivery, there's all kinds of shortfallings and, um, and so does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what you're, you're parsing out is the difference between specific physical techniques of caring for the land 
and sort of a generalized philosophy of how we engage with place. And I guess I would say in a similar way, a generalized philosophy of engaging with place also had origins. And while, you know, the folks who claim to be inventors of permaculture certainly did the work to pull out themes and, and identify patterns, that fundamental way of seeing the earth is still an indigenous worldview that's been sort of squished into you know, a generic set of principles. And, and I, so I think there's still room in that for everything we talked about when it comes to philosophy, not just the technique, mm. but how mm. do we acknowledge, gain consent for, compensate for um, the philosophy or, or the cosmology that is being referenced in permaculture principles. Yeah, I love that phrasing, <laughs> squished into a generic set of principles. <laughs> you know, the, the, and, and yet that is, that is a, a worthy issue in conversation for me because we, it's like we're so removed from the earth and community and history and everything else that some kind of um, trainer wheels or so, you know, so, something seems to be required um, there. And yet how can it happen in a way that honors the origins and, and, and doesn't genericize. And there is a way it's not saying like, Oh, throw out permaculture. It's just Mm. saying, you know, how can we do better? How can we still Mm. access the, the knowledge, um, the heart knowledge, the emotional knowledge, the, you know, mind's knowledge to be in right relationship with the earth in a way that doesn't perpetuate more harm. Mm. It doesn't erase the people who originated that knowledge. So that's why I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. And, you know, I didn't come into this work through, permaculture, I came into it through the farming community and, and sort of bumping up into permaculture on the edges and find mm-hmm. it really fascinating and important, but also heartbreaking. Cause I'm like, why, mm. why though? Why you got to take other people's stuff and oh, sell it? Yeah. 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 Fully. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in my own way, there's, there's aspects of this I find heartbreaking for just as you were speaking, I had a little flash of like, hang on, in a sense, I feel a resonance like there's the, cause in your case, the uprooting racism in the food system and then seeding, um, community land sovereignty now, there's certain things I'm, I'm i'm working less at the the issues around inappropriate appropriation of, of techniques and strategies at the at the level of how is permaculture at risk of 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 using basically the same kind of approach which is colonial and impositional and very kind of intellectually driven in a sense masculine how how do we to what degree is it simply using all those same kind of ways of being and thinking and approaching things, but rebranding them, what would it mean to do the deep work of actually re, um, regenerating the, um, the, the ways we see and, 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 and approach things? And, and I'm interested in going back to the seed and, and, and reseeding those kinds of evolutions. And it, it does bring me some joy to hear you acknowledge that it's not about you know, like completely writing off things like this. It's, it's like inviting the hard work and the honesty and so on. But yet, so what I heard from this, you're not saying that you think permaculture is a lost cause, but there's a lot of work mm-hmm. to be done. Is that a fair call? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I rarely think anything is a lost cause, except maybe um, <laughs> yeah. what's yeah. going on in our country right now. But the <laughs> yes, there's plenty of room for growth and repair. Right. Now, I'm super keen to ask you about um, these two, these, well, I guess there's kind of four concepts here, because I, I I feel some trepidation in, in diving into this territory and, and bringing listeners and so on into it because it's loaded and triggering and 
you know, I see sometimes make someone make a fairly innocent comment about decolonization in a permaculture forum or something, and then suddenly there's just this explosion of really strong feelings, and and yet I'm 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 up for it and I'm I'm going there. Well, and podcast be- is one way, so you don't have to worry about anyone exploding. Maybe in the <laughs> yeah, comments, they can explode in their own space and time. Yeah. So one thing I'm wanting to do is to dive into these concepts and and really get clear on them and make sure that I'm understanding them properly and and um, engaging with folks like yourself that have been thinking and exploring this stuff for a long time. And so I'd love you to, to have you speak to your understanding of what, what we mean by colonizing. Because um, to me, you know, the colonizing is something that happens that we then want to decolonize. You know, decolonizing is undoing it in a sense. So, but it just your languaging around that, maybe, maybe we could start there. If you could just, you know, how- Sure. Yeah. Well, I do have indigenous ancestry, um, Taino and Cherokee freedmen. Um, I primarily identify as Black, and so don't want to speak for Turtle Island Indigenous people, but I will echo what a lot of our comrades have said about that, which is it's very important to acknowledge that colonization and decolonization are not metaphors. They refer to folks coming in to the lands, taking over the lands, displacing people um, from their land, and that without uh, the lands back movement, the rematriation of land, there is no decolonization. So it's not about shifting our mind frame or letting go of linear time or getting close to the earth. Like those might be nice outcomes or corollaries, but decolonization means giving la- land back to indigenous people, full stop. Not a metaphor. So I will say that and hopefully I said it right because I'm accountable to indigenous people of our lands because that's there primary struggle. Thanks for sharing that. Would you say there that, that unless land is in the conversation and the fact that land has been taken? Land and sovereignty, meaning, so I don't know what the, the system is where you all are, but you know, in the United States, indigenous people who are in federally recognized tribes still are considered domestic dependents of the United States government. So they'll have reservations, but those reservations are technically owned by the Department of the Interior of the United States. And the indigenous councils have some governance rights, but they don't have full sovereignty. So decolonization would mean giving the lands back and giving true sovereignty to indigenous people over their historical territories and their lands without being under the thumb of that colonial government that still fundamentally calls the shots and has the rights mm. to put a pipeline uh, or a nuclear waste site or you know coal mine or, or whatnot onto those territories to, to truly have sovereignty. And I will say that I myself would gratefully and humbly submit to Indigenous sovereignty on this entire continent and trust that that governance would honor the humanity of all of us um, in a way that our current regime does not. Thank you. Would you be um, up for sharing the phrase I hear, I'm hearing often in conjunction with dec- particularly decolonization is indigeneity and also the idea of re-indigenizing, which, which like the uprooting racism and seeding, one, one is about, you know, D is about getting away from something. The other one is about re is going back towards something. But could you speak to what re-indigenizing evokes for your means for you? Definitely. I mean, as someone of African heritage, I think it's been really important for us to, incla- to claim our indigeneity to our homelands and recognize that as indigenous people, you know, between two and 400 years ago, we're uprooted from our lands, our traditions, our um, ways of knowing the plants, the soil, the economic sharing, and then forced to build the multi-trillion dollar agricultural industry in the United States. But that didn't make us 
stop being indigenous, right? And I think that it has been very important for folks in our movement to connect with both the pre-colonial ways of knowing and, and revive and build upon those traditions and also to think about what a post-colonial or re-indigenized way of being is that's informed by those ancestral traditions and also informed by an Afrofuturist uh, trust of our own experience um, and the innovation of our own experience. And every continent, you know, all of us have indigenous mm. past and, you know, and for Europeans, I think uh, folks have to go particularly far back uh, to access that. And I, and I think that it would be powerful for us to investigate what our pre-colonial ways of being were and how to bring them forward into present time. So to me, re-indigenizing doesn't mean copying native North Americans or like copying Aboriginal people. Um, it means connecting with that place in our ancestry that was accountable to the earth, that was accountable to our lineages, accountable to community. Um, and figuring out how we can bring those principles forward. Mm, yeah. Thanks for mentioning both sides of that. You know, going honouring the ancestry, the Indigenous ancestry that runs through all of our veins, as more far removed as it is for some of us, um, but also how we bring that forward. Because I was curious about that. You know, what what would it mean to? Well, firstly, so from what you're saying, it's possible for anyone to re-Indigenize. It's an open conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and so to, to re-indigenize, part of that is going back and honoring ancestry and, and, and traditional indigenous roots and ways of living. Um, and yet you've been translocated and you're in, you know, you, that's in Europe and Ireland or Scotland or whatever, now you're here, or in your case, the African lineage. Is part of it also, my understanding of indigenous is being of place, deep, just deeply okay. non-separate to place. Does that mean that part of it is also you know, reconnecting with, with wherever you've ended up? Is that the other half or how do you, how do you, does that make sense? Oh, I think that's certainly part of it. But I do think remembering is first. Like mm -hmm. there's no way to connect to place or to re-indigenize without the remembering part, that ancestral part. And that, that's the beginning of a lot of folks' journeys. Mm -hmm. um, but also to recognize that our people were never static. They were always innovating. And mm -hmm. so honoring and caring for that tradition means to continue to innovate, including continuing to get to know place. And we look at that in terms of indigenous folks from West Africa, again, being forcibly relocated to the Americas and immediately starting to learn from native folks here about the plants and the uses of the plants, mm. like, mm. Um, you know, blue cohosh as a woman's herb and the use of the variety of cotton um, that grows in the States for um, abortions from, you know, being from forced as resistance to forced breeding. And I'm, I'm referencing the research of Dr. Claudia Ford, who's a wonderful ethnobotanist who talks about the native American and black connection in herbalism. So that is, that is part of carrying forth an indigenous perspective is to take those same principles of deep knowledge of, of plants and, and connection to healing and then figure out, well, well what's here in this new place? Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's part of our cosmology that once the blood of your people and the bones of your ancestors have been decomposed in a soil that you have belonging there as well, which mm -hmm. is complex because mm -hmm. we'd like it to be cut and dry. Like this land only pertains to these people, mm -hmm. um, but that's never the way it was. Once your blood and bones are in the lands, then the land knows you, the land claims you. Mm -hmm. And so we have to think also differently about private property and enclosure and, 
uh, shared rights and shared sovereignty, you know, it gets it gets pretty complex <laughs> when you it's carry the logic out. Conversation, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I'd really take and appreciate your point that unless there's conversation around land, the decolonization, it's not metaphorical, it's not to be abstract. And yet a, 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 a phrase I'm hearing a lot coming back to permaculture is decolonizing permaculture. And so, or, or it could be decolonizing, you know, whatever, whatever movement, biomimicry or agriculture or. And I've heard that too. And the pushback I've heard from native communities here um, on Turtle Islands, which is the name of the continent that we're on, mm-hmm. is like, stop that. That's our word that we use to talk about getting our land and our sovereignty back. And so you have appropriated our word <laughs> for the movement that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly to Black folks bristling at reparations being used kind of callously and haphazardly. Reparations specifically means, you know, the return of resources that were taken from a people as well as apology and uh, guarantee of non-repeat. And so when we use reparations to just mean like making a donation to a black organization, that's, that's not what we're talking about. And so I think it, it is important, you know, to think about who originated and who owns these terms and to make sure that we're using them in the ways mm. that were intended. Mm. Um, so again, I can't speak on, on behalf of like, anyone, especially not all Indigenous people, but I have heard a really strong pushback to that metaphorical use of the word decolonization. Mm-hmm. Th- thank you. I think, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm just sort of bringing to orient myself to it and, and unpack it. And it's quite, it's the, the, there's all these layers of irony, right? The idea that decolonization itself <laughs> is, is, is in some sense is appropriated. And, right, it's a colonial term. And, and I, not everyone is, feels that way. I mean, people have different yeah. ideas. Some people like to use the, word, the phrase BIPOC for Black, Indigenous, people of color. Other people think that's super whack and collapses. So again, you're not going to get consensus. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it would be disingenuous not to mention that there is a real concern um, in the community around, around that metaphorical use of the word and, and that it can kind of dilute the energy that is needed right now to actually mm. give people's land back and give people's mm-hmm. rights back. And do you feel the same? What well, so coming back to re, the idea of re indigenizing it seems like de- decolonizing is in how you're framing it here. It's it's really it's relevant and most potent. We don't want to dilute its use by the appropriate people who are colonized peoples that are seeking basically would like our, our land that you stole from us back. That that kind of, that side of things. Whereas with re indigenizing. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense, of course, to say re-indigenizing permaculture. It's re-indigenizing applies to human beings. But is that, do you feel like, is that used in an appropriate way sometimes? Or is is the idea of becoming indigenous re-indigenizing, you know, is is there any um, pushback if you're familiar with around that or? Oh, you know, I'm not as, as sure about that, but I imagine it would be similar in terms of really investigating what we mean by re-indigenizing, that it's not appropriating indigenous culture, it's not, um, you know, burning sage in the four directions because we saw that on the internet. You know, if it, mm. <laughs> if it, if we're really talking about investigating our own lineages, um, giving credit where it's due, um, being accountable to indigenous communities, maybe. Um, but again, I would check in because who who gets to define what re-indigenizing is? I would think it would be people who identify as indigenous. So hmm. uh, I would I would really check in about that. <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you've heard of Carol Sanford's work. 
Oh, not too much, but I would love to hear what you have to say about it. Oh, well, so yeah, so she's a very super fascinating um, individual to me and I've been learning from her for a year or so and she has um, Indigenous American uh, blood and she learned um, a lot from her grandfather um, from the Mohawk lineage and um, she's got some to me really compelling and powerful uh, ways of thinking about what regeneration is and, and is very disruptive uh, in her work and, and one of her offerings is what she calls the seven first principles of regeneration which she attributes yeah. to initially to her grandfather and she's refined and evolved over time and I, I'm conscious simultaneously of what you said earlier about the risks in squishing beautiful diverse complex ways of being into a generic set of principles and yet in this case the they're about as deep and as profound as anything principles I've come across. And, um, right, and they're principles that come from this Mohawk or Aquasasane lineage. Yes, and also who work with yeah. in Ecuador, I think, and other, and other with, with, directly with other indigenous <laughs> people around the world. Yeah, and it, like the, it starts with the idea of, and the, the, last, the last episode, we had Carol on the show and she took us through those, and so I'm, they're very relevant at the moment. And, um, and it starts with the idea of seeing holes again, getting out of fragmented, scattered vision and actually getting to see the whole life shed or forest or tree or person or community, whatever it is. And then acknowledging that, and she talks about how the indigenous people she's worked with specifically and learned from, um, and the, the idea, everything has its own distinctive or unique essence. And you can learn to see that and honor, honor that. And that for her, that leads into the conversation around um, developing the ability of anything, person, um, landscape, whatever, to express its essence um and to her that's what regeneration is about it's and, and getting oh, out of beautiful. any kind of trying to impose ideas trying to do you know because often permaculture is done in the name of doing good here's a whole lot of do of good ideas and i, I wasn't going to admit this but i i had a humiliating experience in ethiopia when i went over as the university educated white middle class permaculture guy i was with an older amazing um, female permaculture mentor but we're, we were working through two translators and, and and struggling to get across nuanced ideas of contour water harvesting and all that you know stuff and terracing and all that and the people are kind of looking at us a bit confused and then afterwards they took us for a tour of the landscape and showed us these like multi-thousand year exquisitely you know off the charts perfectly engineered um systems and so looking back i'm very embarrassed <laughs> to admit that i was i was in that thing i thought i was doing a good thing right i was going overseas and i was i was educating people with this amazing knowledge that was was a clear example of what you're talking about before that ultimately a lot of the stuff they were like oh you mean this that we've been doing right <laughs> yeah yeah you, so you're telling us this thing you learned about last year yeah yeah we've been doing it for three thousand years check it out well, oh okay but they were beautiful about it. they didn't um they didn't rub it in too much but but anyway of course, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the idea that 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 a, that a lot of stuff is well is she talks about these different levels. Often it's about arresting disorder, like the uprooting racism, about pushing back against something undesirable. Um, and then, but as you move towards actually creating something positive, that it's easy to impose what you think are good ideas. And that's what was, was key to what the colonial um, impulse was about, particularly the missionaries that followed the early settlers. Well, they thought they were doing the good thing by imposing their religion on the, um, you know, in, in, in New Zealand, preventing people from... Indigenous New Zealanders just from using their language, you know, and forcing them to go to school and all that that kind of stuff, as opposed to deeply coming to understand the essence of something and, and supporting it to express itself. So, you know, to me, it's a quite a deep concept of regeneration that's relevant here, because as you move through the principles, another one of them is this idea of nodes, which you know as a gardener and a, and a pruner, 
the places where energies come together and you need to know where the nodes on the tree are as you come in with your circuiteers. And she talks about this concept of nodal intervention that you can learn to find the, the nodes in any system where the, inter, where the energies come together and their places are very potent um, potential. And if you come in with the right energy, right information, right angle, right time and so on, you can affect system-wide change. And I was struck as I surveyed some of your work, looked at some of your videos and stuff, like it seems to me you're, you're doing that consciously or unconsciously, you're, you're working nodally, you're finding nodal places, like for example, young black and brown aspiring farmers in the States creating these held educational experiences. It seems to me a nodal thing that over time can catalyze larger change. But does that have any resonance with you, the idea of seeing and working with nodes or? Sorry, that was I mean, that's really beautiful. I hadn't thought about it like that. And I will, I will tell you, I tend to be a pretty concrete person and don't do a lot of like abstracting into principles. So I have to think about it. But um, of course, like almost like identifying this pivot point or this energy center makes a lot of sense. I mean, something it makes me think of with, with nodes or where like energies come together would be this particular year of pandemic when, um, you know, grocery store shelves were empty, there was a lot of panic and chaos. Uh, people were realizing what mattered most sometimes for the first time in terms mm. of access to food and outdoor space and safety. And we got all of this energy uh, from the community of like, we wanna learn how to garden. Can you build us a garden? Can you come help and engage? And there were so many um, energy points really coming together at the garden in terms of folks need to have something meaningful for their children to do, uh, folks needing access to fresh food, folks needing to be outside because uh, the particle density of COVID is, is less, uh, folks needing a, a sense of agency and, and something to do in a time when they're told to stay home and they can't do anything. And so it became this like focal point of survival and a lot of people saying, you know, if it wasn't for this garden, like, I don't know if, if mentally or psychologically, I could even make it through much less um, physically. Mm -hmm. So that's something I think about where a lot of energy points come together. I don't know totally. if that's what you yeah. mean. But. Yeah, totally. No, I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful living example. I just felt a pang of guilt. I should, I just want to, not that Carol's going to listen to this, but I didn't do all the principles justice. I'm going to have to send you something. And if anyone's listening, go and listen to the last episode. Okay. Yeah, please, please. <laughs> I'll make sure that I read up on the, the principles so that I'm more informed in the future. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, if you have any interest, I'd be happy to send some stuff through and, and, and engage in future. I, th I think they're, they're exciting and powerful and relevant. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Beautiful. Leah, thanks for your time. It's been really great. Thank to you so you. much. This has Thank been a really you. beautiful conversation. I'm glad we finally made it happen. So enjoy your day. And um, I know it's just starting for you. It's ending for me. So. Thanks so much. It's been lovely to, to have your energy flow into the show. Thanks, Leah. Catch you later. Take care. Bye. 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 Thank you.